If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, April the 4th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover studio deep in the heart of Stanford University's mm -hmm. campus is Dr. David Brady. He is the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He also holds the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. David's an anniversary today, so it's a very ominous anniversary, 50 yes. years since Martin Luther King was shot. Where were you 50 years ago today? 50 years ago, I was at the University of Iowa finishing my uh, Ph.D. Mm -hmm. That was 68, right? Right, and the reaction on the campus when King was shot was? Uh, anger. Lots of people went out on the streets protesting, etc. Mm -hmm. um, general first shock, and then pretty much after that, anger. Interesting. Um, how does 68 compare to 2016, 2017, 2018 in terms of anger, frustration, protest, and so forth? Do you see a thread between the two, or is 20, or we in different times, given how the issues seem to change, but the, but the protests seem to... In other words, it seems to me, Dave, in 1968, you had some genuine drivers in the form of Vietnam, civil rights assassinations and so forth. And there's a question all the times when you have reactions to tragedies, how much of it is sincere and how much it is, the word that's used is astroturfed. In other words, right. how much it's real and how much of it's faint. Well, I, I do think it is, it's different. So one of the things that uh, gives us older guys uh, advantage, most of my colleagues in political science, if you'd ask them the question, mm -hmm. where were they when Martin Luther, they weren't born. Uh, so, one thing that gives us an advantage is we've seen uh, you have troubled times in the United States. So I don't think these times are as uh, harsh for the reasons you mentioned uh, or as uh, critical as 1968 because then you did have Vietnam War, civil rights, a uh, series of assassination, the Kennedys, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we don't have anything politically at that extent. We have, of course, mass shootings. But uh, this time, the, it's, it's uh, Donald Trump is the force. So if you talked about the 1968 election, right. there were all sorts of things. The Vietnam War, Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's forcing him to support it, then his coming in, Nixon's winning narrowly, uh, third-party candidate George Wallace. All of those things were involved in the 68 Republican, narrow Republican win. Uh, this time, the 2018 and 20, it's going to be mainly about Donald Trump. There'll be some policy issues, but those policy issues are generally, in my view, not as well defined. Mm -hmm. Globalization, loss of jobs, uh, it's not as though any individual country has solved uh, those sorts of problems. So all countries, advanced industrial economies, are looking for answers to those questions, and we don't have one yet. You've been on continual appointment here at Stanford since 1986. Something like that, long Something time, like yes. That. So this is the same Stanford, Dave, that earlier this week announced its um, admission data for the class of 2022. I don't know if you happen to catch this or not. The yeah. acceptance rate, the admissions rate, 4.29%. Well, that. I think that next well, year we should announce an uh, earlier <laughs> policy that we've accepted no one. That would make sure that we're absolutely the most selective place in the country. That sounds like an Onion article, doesn't yeah. it? Stanford accepts nobody. But a 4.29% admission rate date, which is the lowest ever for Stanford. Um, about the class of 2022, Dave, 65% expressed an interest in humanities and science programs, 30% engineering, 3.5% earth energy and environmental sciences. How many of those kids, Dave, coming into that class, I think there are 2,000 and spare change of them who got admitted, how many of them are going to drift into politics, either, either getting top political science or in some way doing civics-related education? Well, um, I will say that over my, my experience, the, uh, I, I've taught Introduction to Public Policy 101 for a long time. Uh, and during the Clinton period, um, that class had over, I think one time it had 295 people in it. Mm -hmm. uh, people were very interested in the interest today in politics is uh, less. I think we have 125 students in that class. I think it, even at that that level, it might still be the largest class in right. in political science. I, I don't know if that's true. I think it is. 
Um, so there's less interest. There's many more engineering majors, and I think given the cost of education, uh, people are saying to themselves, "We've got to, uh, we've got to figure out something that'll uh, pay back uh, what our parents paid for the tuition." There are fewer people going to law school than there were before, so the enrollments in political science are down, psychology majors are down, history's down. However, the Haas Center and all sorts of places, Stanford and Washington, allow students to have some Washington-level activity or some policy experience or some internship or research experience. So the number is uh, down, I think, from the 90s when it was sort of at the high point. Uh, and, and it was high in the 90s because you'd had the end of the Reagan era, the press and everybody was talking about we're in the end of gridlock and Bill Clinton's going to be able to pass all these things, which, of course, he didn't do. Um, I mean, he didn't pass all the things that people thought he would pass. So I think students have gotten more cynical about politics and what, what it can achieve. Uh, and that's accounted to the decline, I think, in the number of students uh, interested in politics. I mentioned this, Dave, because you and uh, Brett Parker wrote a very interesting analysis for Real Clear Politics uh, late last month, the headline, Trump and Women, Independence, Worrisome Signs. Um, I also mentioned this because if you look at the 2016 election, you saw a vast gender gap, but you also saw an education gap yep. as well. So let's talk a bit, Dave, about these cleaves in, in our electorate, and let's begin with women. Well, so the 20, uh, if, if I might do it this way, if you thought about what, what if you, suppose you didn't know that Donald Trump was the presidential candidate in 2016 and you were just looking at a historical time series and all you had was DNR. There was a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate. Right. Uh, the 2012 and 2016 elections look a lot alike, the two differences being the ones you mentioned. One, the gender gap went a little more for Hillary Clinton than it had for Barack Obama. But the big difference uh, between 2012 and 2016 was uh, blue-collar uh, workers. So if you looked at people who made less than 50000 uh, they voted for Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, whites made less than 50000 And that number switched by huge amounts towards Trump. If you uh, switch that to say, okay, people who uh, have high school degree or less, it's basically the same variable. And there was a huge switch among them right. uh, to away from the Democrats and to, uh, and, and to uh, President Trump. So uh, those are huge, huge gaps. They still exist. And I saw the recent exit poll. I, we never believed that, we meaning Rivers and I. Uh, we never believed that uh, the, the exit polls show a lower number of uh, blue-collar, white workers, people without a uh, college degree. Right. The numbers uh, in America are higher than that, which caused, which is sort of a result probably of the fact that uh, blue-collar workers are less interested in talking to pollsters when they come out. So it's underrepresented in those polls. But in ours, we had, in our polls, we had the right number of uh, blue-collar workers. Okay, interesting. There was a. Well, I shouldn't really say. Pardon me. I right. shouldn't really say. I should say it the way you said it. We, we, many of them are blue-collar workers, mm -hmm. but the real point is, it's education and uh, it's high school or la high school degree or less, right. but no college. And the other part is uh, income, 50000 or less. Right. So the other day, Dave, a Harvard Caps Harris poll came out. This is uh, Mark Penn, the former Clinton yep. pollster. He, he runs this. And uh, they polled Trump. And here's what they found among women. Uh, the poll says that his support among women fell from 41% to 35%. At the same time, his uh, support among men rose 3%. And Penn attributes the decline in women to what he calls the stormy effect which is Stormy Daniels, the porn star who Trump has been linked to, who was on 60 Minutes. This raises a question, Dave, when you look at the Trump relationship with women voters, how much of this is style and how much of this is policy? Well, I don't think it, my view is I don't think it has a lot to do with policy. So Democratic women aren't right. voting for him. Right. Uh, so in our, so we ran the, the article you mentioned, we ran uh, women's support uh, right from the beginning of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And pretty early, Trump had fallen down by over 20 points. That is, if you ask women, uh, do you approve or disapprove of the job Donald Trump is doing as president, there was a 20-point gap among women. Right. And that gap has maintained, it came back up a bit during the uh, tax cut, 
Uh, he moved back up into, uh, with men, it was uh, real close. In fact, right. at some point he had a little bit of a lead. But uh, among women, he never got back 10. It's, and now it's back down uh, to over 20 points of women who do not approve of the job he's doing. It's at 19 points in our latest poll. Let's play devil's advocate for a moment. How much does gender gap really matter? Because Barack Obama was reelected in 2012 with, at the time, the largest gender gap in history in terms of support among women and lack of support among men. Donald Trump was elected in 2016 with a new record in gender gap in terms yeah. of lack of support among women yeah. and support among men. So, Well, Trump actually lost, as you know, by about 3 million votes. Right. Obama actually won by 5 million votes. So. Right. The fact that the Democrats vote uh, is concentrated in states like New York, Illinois, and California, where uh, where Democrats win overwhelmingly, uh, makes a difference in that. So it's really the distribution right. of that vote. And in the key states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, mm -hmm. in, in key states like that in the Midwest, it is the case that it was that white, blue-collar vote that right. moved to Trump and the fact that in those same states, blacks did not turn out in 2016 like they turned out for Barack Obama in 2012. So um, so the, 20, the presidential races are uh, kind of a little easier to calculate in one way, right, because you know what the turnout is. Right. We do know this in every election since 1966, there are more women voters than men. Mm -hmm. uh, that's true of off-year elections. So the 2018 elections, uh, usually Republicans get a little bit of advantage in the off-year election because uh, the most heavily uh, Democratic groups like uh, turnout is down among minorities, turnout's down among young people who tend to vote. So uh, Republicans usually get a little boost in uh, off-year elections. To me, the crucial question for the 2018 elections is exactly what's turnout gonna be. Mm -hmm. And at this point, could change, but all of our indicators are showing that Democrats are a lot more fired up about the 2018 election than our Republicans. You and your uh, colleague Doug Rivers, um, who runs YouGov polling, have come up with a number for Democratic turnout, a number that you think produces the magical number the Democrats need to regain the House, and that number is? 50, yes, it's Doug's number, mm -hmm. uh, but he can, can be here today, but so 53 percent. So. Uh, so one of the things that Doug did that uh, very interesting, so he ran the generic poll, mm -hmm. and it turns out, uh, and the generic poll, and then he runs generic poll against how many seats change hands. Right. But uh, what happens is, because there's uh, the nature of the error variance in the uh, of generic vote, when you run over time regressions, it tends to have everything regress to the mean and underestimate. Mm -hmm. So most people are saying it's like 55, 56% turnout. Right. Uh, Doug thinks it's 53%, and the paper convinced me, uh, paper convinced me that that's probably right. 53%, uh, 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 Democrats win with 53% of the vote, which will depend upon turnout, of course. Uh, if they win 53% of the vote, they can take the House. Is 53 an aberration? Is that an unusually high number for off-year elections? Uh, it's close to uh, like 2006 mm -hmm. uh, for the Democrats, right. uh, so on, on those grounds. Now, we do have a, a data set that has turnout in uh, special elections and in congressional elections, and uh, mm -hmm. he's working on a model that would try and make a prediction, and in a future podcast, uh, he'll have that. But I leave that to him since he's better qualified statistically than I to do that. I want to throw some numbers by you and get your thoughts on this, Dave. Uh, Pew Research Center in 2016 does a report on party affiliation. It finds a majority of all voters with at least a four-year college degree, 58% of them identified as Democrats or lean Democratic, which is the highest share dating back to 1992. It found just 36% of that voting bloc affiliating with the Republicans or leading GOP. It went on to say the much larger group of voters who do not have a four-year degree is even more evenly divided in partisan affiliation. Voters with no college experience have been moving toward the GOP. 47% identify with or lean Republican, up from 42% in 2014. 
In shorthand, Dave, college education means you're drifting toward the Democratic Party. No college education means you're leaning toward the Republican Party. Is Absolutely. This, right. Now, is this a reflection of Trump running a very blue-collar populist campaign in 2016, or is there something larger in terms of what the two it's parties are? It's a bit of that, but I think I agree it's larger. So if you looked at the vote in Brexit, if you looked at the vote in France, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the vote uh, in Denmark— that what's happening is that educated people are in the cities. Right. And so what we're finding in all these states is the further you move away from the city, mm -hmm. the higher the proportion of the anti-Brexit vote, the higher the vote for Le Pen, the higher the vote for the People's Party in Denmark, the higher the vote, the more rural the area, the higher the vote for uh, Five Star in Italy. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's not just a Trump phenomenon. Right. So this gets into this gets into education, Dave. It gets into lifestyle, I suspect. And I guess it gets into worldview as well, just how you view the country and perhaps your own mindset. Doug had a great question that uh, uh, was uh, essentially the question was, uh, do you see the world as essentially friendly place with most people are good, or do you see the world as kind of a nasty place? Yeah. And it turns out that I, I thought when he wrote that question, I thought, what a stupid question. <laughs> But it turns out that across uh, lots of countries, it's very predictive of how people vote. In the United States, people who say, oh, generally the world's a pretty friendly place, they tend to vote Democratic. And, right. and, and that's, but that's also a reflection of how well they're doing. So if you, if you look at, just like you said, right. college-educated people living in urban areas, they're, they're, they're doing reasonably well. Right. They have different lifestyles. They have a pretty high income. They go out and uh, eat in uh, different ethnic kinds of restaurants. And if you're not from there and you don't make that kind of money, you eat at Applebee's. That's at, Charles Murray had that famous bubble, do you live in a bubble test? Yes. And I used to give that bubble test to uh, my classes here at Stanford, but I, I got depressed because like 93% of them were in the bubble. And uh, only Fiorina and I were in the were in the part we're, we're in the part where you were not in the bubble, right? Because uh, he comes from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and I come from Kankakee, Illinois. So I stopped giving it. We're technically part of Palo Alto, California, Dave, which just might be a bubble because I saw a survey a few weeks ago which asked Palo Altans to define themselves economic standing, people making three hundred thousand dollars a year to find themselves as middle class. Yes. Exactly. So this is a bubble. I'm struck, Dave, in politics how sometimes the more change, the more it remains the same. In this regard, if you and I had been sitting here 12 years ago, and yes, we could have been doing this 12 years ago. Podcast actually yeah. were still yeah. infant then. But in March 2006, we could have sat here, April 2006, and had a conversation about something you were working on right now, which, uh, which is a project, Red and Blue Nation Characteristics and Causes of America's Polarized Politics. Yeah. And you wrote a very interesting paper about that, which I'd like to talk about for a couple minutes. You talked about three phases of polarization in the United States, the first being the American Civil War, the second being the early the 1890s and early 1900s when the parties polarized over whether government should facilitate the growth of urban, so it became an urban-rural split. And then the third was the 1930s, where again there was a conversation about the role of government, this time government really involved as an engine of the economy. Right. Are we in a fourth period of polarization? We are. Uh, I... We are. Uh, so uh, when you think about polarization, it seems to me there's three levels to think about it. Mm -hmm. The first is the um, go the governing elite. That is, that's easy to look at in Congress. Right. How's the voting in Congress? Mm -hmm. uh, we can do that with public and opinion polls with people who are activist Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's one level. Uh, the second level you want to look at uh, polarization is what about it at the public level? What is right. is, is the uh, is the public uh, generally? And I think uh, two things. One, uh, we are back at uh, levels of congressional voting similar to those earlier periods. That's not so uncommon in the U.S. The one period where we had cross-party voting was essentially the pre-post-war and the post-war period with the conservative coalition, Republicans and Democrats, but that, right. that's gone. The parties have sorted. Liberal Republicans moved into the Democratic Party and conservative Democrats moved into the Republican Party. Uh, I, so I think, I, I think the American public itself is a little more polarized than it was. And so if you ask Republicans and Democrats 
uh, what do you, uh, is the other part, are Democrats a threat to the nation? And, you know, a reasonably high proportion of uh, Democrats say yes and a, a corresponding number of Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people overinterpret that, in my view, um, because the number of people who are Republican Democrats is really not very high. The Democratic and Republican parties are uh, relatively low. About 40% of Americans, when asked, do you consider yourself Democrat or Republican, they say, I'm an independent. independent. Now, they may lean one way or the other in a particular election. Mm -hmm. But then you ask the question, are people very happy with the Democratic and Republican parties? Mm -hmm. And only the elites are uh, sort of happy with it. So I think Americans... Generally, Americans are not as polarized as the elites, Uh, and so there's three levels of party voting, the party elites and the people who are really interested in politics, maybe two million people. People who read like you and I will read Real Clear Politics every day. Uh, People who listen to this podcast probably are uh, part of that. Mm -hmm. And then the average American who doesn't spend very much time on it, and they're not as polarized. So we go back and we look at those three periods of history, Dave, in terms of sorting out and conclusions and who wins and who loses. It's pretty clear to see what choices are made. Civil War, there's certainly a conclusive outcome. If the choice is is industry versus agriculture in the early 1900s, industry wins that argument. And the New Deal, now we can talk about Ronald Reagan wanting to come along and dismantle the New Deal, but no, Franklin Roosevelt's you know, Social Security has been around for 80 years. It's not going away. Government is still large. Yeah, I think Reagan was a useful right. correction. Right. To, it didn't change New Deal policies, as many people right. fretted it would. Mm-hmm. But it did readjust them right. down to a more reasonable level because Social Security, all sorts of things were going to go broke. We're, I think we're approaching right. that again. Yeah. That that Reagan fix uh, cut the government back some, right. and uh, slowed the rate of growth of federal expenditures. Right. We're but that's that now we're coming on another right. period. But FDR, FDR won that argument in the 1930s. Yes, so though, exactly. even though he had legal setbacks, he yes. still the New Deal won the argument. <clears throat> exactly. The time. But in terms of sorting out, Dave, let's again go back to 2006. We're sitting here in the spring of 2006. There's a Republican president, and Republicans control Congress. And what does the public do that fall? They bounce the Republicans out of both chambers of Congress. It's now a Democratic Congress. We go to 2008, and the Republican president's replaced by a Democratic president. It's now an all-Democratic regime in Washington. We then go to 2010, and Republicans take back the House. But the Senate remains Democratic, president's still in place. In 2012, the Democratic president's reelected. Nothing changes. 2014, the Senate goes Republican. Yep. 2016, Republican president replaces Democratic president. We've gone full circle in 12 years, Dave. So. Yep. What are the American people doing here in terms of trying to sort things out? It seems that we're sort of, it's sort of like the kid who's driving for the first time and he has one foot on the gas and the other one on brake yep. and just that, can't, can't decide what to do. So I think what's happening is the, the only other period in American history where this happens mm-hmm. is roughly year, uh, called now the year of uh, indecision, 1874-1894. And during that 20-year period, uh, same sorts of things. Grover Cleveland is elected, gets a majority, is not elected. Right. There's very few, very, very no period of any length where one party controls. So, and what what drives that? It seems to me the same thing drives it in both cases. The rise of uh, <clears throat> globalized economy mm-hmm. in the first, in the 1870s to 1890s, the United States moved from essentially agricultural country to the uh, biggest industrial power. In the process, people moved off of farms, ways of life uh, were gone. What are these workers going to do? And the same, so the same, so the issues at the time were, oh, the tariff, immigration. We banned immigration during that time. The the Gilded Era, oh, look at the elites, the Rockefellers and the Pierpont Morgans, et cetera. Uh, and And if you look, the same issues are out there today in a different way and harder to deal with because today now 80% of the world is part of that global economy, which makes competition uh, exceedingly hard. So the fact is then what's going to happen in regard to issues of immigration, issues of uh, jobs, those uh, same sets of issues. So the American public is uh, kind of floating back and forth. They elect uh, Obama because they think Bush has gone too far with privatizing Social Security and others in the Iraq War. Right. Then Obama comes in and passes the Affordable Care Act. He goes too far and they push the other way. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at 2018, the odds are they're going to send somewhat of a signal to uh, President Trump. Right. Although it's hard to characterize Trump as 
being either like Bush, a conservative, or like Obama, a liberal. Or I think, anyway, it's hard to. Okay. Uh, getting back to women, there is a woman who is appearing increasingly in Democrat in uh, Republican ads around uh, the country now for Republican congressional candidates. That woman is Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. uh, saw a stat the other day on this, Dave. She is now appearing in 34% of Republican ads around the country. Last year, she appeared in 9% of Republican ads. Uh, last year, there was a special election in Georgia, the 6th Congressional District. She appeared in 55% of the Republican ads in that district. In the Pennsylvania 18th special election just uh, the other week, she appeared in 58% of the Republican ads. Now, the Republicans won the race in Georgia. They lost in Pennsylvania. Are we going to be seeing a lot of Nancy Pelosi this fall? Well, I think if you look at uh, mid, uh, midterm, off-year elections, mm -hmm. um, they're really referendum on the president, just as 2010 was Obama and 2006 right. was on Bush. So in, in that case, if it's going to be on Trump, mm -hmm. then the Republicans' best opportunity is they got to make it, and they're going to pick on Pelosi, who right. uh, has very low approval ratings, uh, is viewed as too liberal, viewed as too West Coast, and so, yeah, we're going to see uh, we're going to see more of her, uh, but you're going to see. As you, you remember in uh, 1994 elections when the Republicans took over the House for the first time in uh, 40 years, there were a lot of commercials where the Democratic incumbent, Sasser of uh, Tennessee, would be standing there, and as he'd talk, right, he would morph, and then it'd be Bill Clinton, right. So. You are going to see a bunch of that from the Repu uh, from the Democrats on Trump, I'll, and you're I'll, going to see I'll Nancy take, Pelosi. I'll take you further back. I think it was 1980 when the uh, National Republican Congressional Committee, the Republican National Committee, ran generic ads nationwide against Democrats, and the theme was the Democrats are out of gas, trying to underscore they've been in power mm -hmm. for a long time. And it's a very clever ad, and they showed this big car on the side of the road that run out of gas. And who was behind the wheel? Tip. This very large man with a great shock of white hair. It was Tip guy who looked yeah. guy who looked a lot like Tip O'Neill, yeah. but Dave, there's a <laughs> world of difference between putting somebody in kind of a satirical ad who looks like Tip O'Neill yeah. versus Nancy Pelosi's face coming at you. <laughs> yes, I agree. Uh, uh, in a year of polarization. Yeah. Uh, Francis Lee uh, at uh, Maryland has a good book on this, mm -hmm. uh, on majorities. And her claim is that since... Uh, well, my, um, I would modify her claim. I've used it since 1994. Elections have become more important because now both parties think they can win everything. If right. you think about elections from 1932 to 94, the House was never up for grabs. Exactly. And so Republicans never went after it. But now, given that everything's at stake, you could actually win the presidency. Uh, so you campaign along those lines, gives you less incentive to compromise, and, and the result is uh, both parties overstate what they think they can do. Exactly. Uh, this is interesting, though, because while you've had the Republicans showing more Pelosi, the Democrats face a choice as well. And the choice is how to exactly run against Donald Trump. I don't know if you saw it or not, but Tom Steyer is busy at work. Tom Steyer, who lives not too far from here, he's a, um, he's a uh, trust fund, uh, not trust fund, a... Um, Help me out here. He does uh, billionaire. He was a hedge a fund guy. He's a hedge yeah. fund guy. Thank you. He does hedge funds up in San Francisco. Uh, he runs an organization called The Need to Impeach. Um, I think this is a brilliant way for Tom Steyer to play get his with name the, known. Yeah, play the presidents. He's collected about five million signatures. What Tom Steyer did the other day, though, is uh, concerning Democrats. He sent out fifty-one hundred impeachment guides to federal and state Democratic candidates, telling them the argument for Donald Trump uh, being impeached and telling them, in effect, you need to run on impeachment. And this creates a question for Democrats as to how to run against Trump. Insane. And you see, you see the split already. For example, Dave, I'll point you to a congressional race in Michigan. There's a woman named Rashid Tlaib. Now, she is interesting because if she is elected, she'll be the first Muslim woman elected to Congress. Right. She is running to replace John Conyer. Now, John Conyer is a Michigan Democrat from the Detroit area, I think, uh, chair of the House Judiciary Committee yep. at one point, and he has always been obsessed by impeachment. If you go back in the 80s, Dave, he wanted to impeach Ronald Reagan over Grenada. Right. He wanted to impeach George yep. W. Bush in 2006. In fact, the Democrats had to struggle with this issue in 2006 vis-a-vis yes. Bush, and there was the Conyer wing of the party that wanted to ring up Bush on impeachment. Nancy Pelosi, Dave, went on, I think it was Meet the Press or 60 Minutes, right before the election, and said, no, impeachment <coughs> is off the table. I yep. think those are exact words. So you see a split in the Democrats right now where Steyer and those who want to impeach Trump want to bring this into the 
election. Meanwhile, there are blue dog Democrats. There's still such a thing as blue dog Democrats yep. around, and they're saying, no, we need to run on policy. They're taking the page out of the Connor Lamb playbook and distancing themselves from Trump fever and impeachment and trying to focus on policy. So how's this well, going to play out? Well, so the Dem- so one of the reasons it's hard to make a hard hard-nosed prediction at this point mm-hmm. is because we don't know who the candidates are. Right. So, for example, in the Texas 7th District, a district that went for Clinton, the Republican who holds that could be beaten. It's on our list of uh, districts that the Democrats could take. Uh, the local Democrats had a candidate, lawyer, a local woman, um, and then from Washington came uh, a Sanders candidate, Laura Moser, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the Democratic Central Committee actually was advertising against her in the primary because she had written a uh, editorial or a piece in 2014 saying she'd rather uh, have her teeth pulled without any anesthetic rather than live in rural Texas. And so the Democratic Central Committee thought that probably would not be, she wouldn't be a good candidate to run in Texas. Uh, so th- th- those fights are, are, are right. going on. In California, as you know better than I do, uh, if the, Dem- the Democrats need to take at least four, three to four ca- California districts if they're going to win those 24. Right. And as you know, their primaries now, uh, they may have too many candidates. Uh, so you may end up with one uh, moderate Republican against uh, or you could, in some cases, as you pointed out last time, get two Republicans because right. the Democrats split their vote too much. So we'll know more. But those battles are taking place as we speak, and those battles are for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Right. And, California uh, the Tom Steyer part, right. in my view, uh, that's not the way to win. The, right. the people who are for impeaching Donald Trump are uh, going to vote Democratic irrespective. Right. So so California will sort itself out in early June. But then yeah. the question, you're right, is the is the greater question of the Democratic Party. And you have seen this in California where there was a Hillary-Bernie primary in June of 2016. The following year, uh, the Democrats voted on a new state party chair, and it became a very bloody fight between a Bernie-type candidate yeah. and a non-Bernie candidate. Yeah. And now you're seeing out here in the primaries as well. Um, but do you think this is going to be a trope nationwide, Dave, or do you think the Democrats can actually – like Connor Lamb, can they do a pretty good job of trying to fit candidates per district? I think that's what the Democratic Central Committee and right. the reasonable Democrats are trying to do. Because Connor Lamb said, I won't vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. So actually, in fact... And he you, took it off the table. So. Right, he took it off the table. Actually, um, Politico, California, polled uh, the Democrats running for Congress out here. And only about half of them would commit to voting for her for Speaker as well. So... I, I don't know if they if there's something radioactive about her or they're just trying to keep that from being a distraction in their election or not, but... Well, no, that, that's, that's interesting that they do that in California. But uh, so she's not popular. Uh, she had, her approval ratings are lower. They're lower than Paul Ryan and uh, about the same as Mitch McConnell's. Uh, so the bottom line on that is it's a, it's a good campaign strategy. Right. But in terms of the dispute that you mentioned with the Steyer faction versus the others, right. I mean, they campaigned. Uh, in 2014 against Mary Landrew on the oil pipeline. Yes. Now, it's just insane. If you're from Louisiana and you're not for oil, then you're not going to get elected. And so so she got beat. Right. So you can have purity, but purity generally makes sure you don't have a majority. Right. So one thing Steyer is doing is uh, his group is called NextGen. And he's actually created a new little splinter group called Next Gen Rising, Dave. And what Next Gen Rising is going to do is spend, I think, about $30 million around the country this fall. And they're targeting millennials. They're trying to get millennials to turn out. And they're targeting races in California. They're targeting uh, Florida uh, gubernatorial and Senate races. I think they're after Arizona. They're in Nevada. They're trying to... uh, uh, to uh, to win the Senate race out there as well. So we haven't talked much about millennials, but you would put them into the underachieving group for Democrats. Right. We uh, we had in uh, or, or Bruce Cain and I this public policy class. We have about 100. So we give the lecture, which is about an hour, and then we uh, break them out. And anybody who wants to stay can stay. We tell them what the topic is, and then it's just a free flow discussion. We had a discussion. About 30 people stayed on the 2018 election, and it was fairly interesting because two of the students 
had worked for uh, Sanders and the, the Sanders, whatever that our revolution movement is. Right. And uh, <clears throat> it was interesting because the question, well, what to do about the 2018 elections? And they, uh, those two students, uh, given their views, didn't care about t 2018. Right. And when it came up to issues about a Connor, Connor Lamb or somebody who would be more moderate and could win, mm -hmm. they didn't care. They, they preferred they lose. And their argument was perfectly legitimate, was, you know, going into 2020, right. if we have, if, if going into the 2020 election, if we have uh, in the Democratic Party 30 of those people in the House majority, right. that's going to make the party more conservative. And that's not what we want. We want to win in 2020. And there was, uh, I would say it was about 80-20 among the students that... Uh, they pushed back was they thought that was silly that they uh, that the Democrats ought to ought to nominate who they can. Right. And then the best discussion was the Lipinski, uh, Dan Lipinski uh, primary in Illinois. Which He's a uh, congressman in Illinois. He is pro-life. I think he yep. voted for the tax cut, if I'm not mistaken. He did. Voted, I think, to repeal Obamacare. Yep. Yeah, he did. He was yep. a very targeted Democrat yep. in that primary. And uh, it was very close, but the question was, uh, what, what? and so even in that, there were more students that said that, you know, they should, Democrats should forget him. But I think a majority, even there, a majority, uh, we had a little vote at the end, I think a majority preferred that uh, they stay in and keep Lipinski. You know, as a son of the Midwest, you must be fascinated by the Illinois governor's race. <laughs> A lot of money in that race, yeah. Uh, I think it is the, uh, I was talking to um, Tom Bevan from Real Clear Politics, yeah. your, your friend yeah. Tom Bevan, and he said this will probably do two things in Illinois. Number one, it's by far the record of the two wealthiest people maybe in any race in America to run yep. against each other because they both have more money than Cronus. But secondly, just two wildly unpopular people. Yes. Uh, so it's... Uh, sad to say, in my home state, there are uh, huge pension difficulties, the... The Republican governors, it's 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 sort of a it's sort of a disaster. If any and people who live in California, mm -hmm. who feel bad about living in California and looking at long-term debt, etc. If you you feel bad, take a look at the Illinois numbers. You'll feel better for a while at least. You know, David Kennedy ran in the uh, in the Democratic primary for governor. Yeah, uh, one of Bobby's kids. Yeah, and he didn't do very well. Nope. And it was interesting he didn't do very well because he tried to push every Kennedy button he could in terms of evoking RFK and JFK. Yep. And this raises the question, Dave, in this day and age of portability and yep. why politicians don't necessarily rub off. Barack Obama had a dilly of a time trying to get his popularity to rub off on other candidates. Yep. He would go into midterm elections and say, vote for this person. Voting for this person is voting for my agenda, protecting Obamacare. And he got spanked in both yep. midterm elections as a president. Yep. Donald Trump went into Pennsylvania not long before the uh, the vote yep. in the in the 18th district, and said, "Vote for this man. It's a vote for me." And, and he went for Alabama too. And Alabama, yep. he went down there as well, yep. and it didn't work out. So why, Dave, are movement politicians not able to transfer, make their movement portable into into their no, surrogates, into people? It's interesting. They never have because I remember the first time I I wasn't there, but. In the 1938 elections, after Roosevelt had won in 32, and then an immense landslide in 36. Right. In the 38 elections, he picked out a bunch of Southern Democrats that he thought were obstructing and not getting his call, and he went after them and got his butt kicked. Exactly. Uh, it does not. I, I think there's uh, when a president comes in. Uh, the candidate can say things like, "What's you know he's doing? He's not a local guy. I'm a local guy. I know the people. Right. I know the people better." It it is interesting. It does not carry over. It didn't carry over for Roosevelt. Um, Reagan was interesting right in the '82 election, which you know better than me. But in '82, in order to get the House was Democratic, in order to get his tax cuts uh, so on through. He promised that he would not run against Democratic candidates with spending, blah blah blah, and right. uh, and that and that worked to to get the deal through. Uh, but those so those sort of days those sort of days are gone. I don't know I don't know exactly why, but I know it's never it has never never seemingly worked that presidents going into congressional districts or state races and saying this is my guy. There's very they just don't seem to. And part of that may be because they're selecting right. 
they're selecting hard, hard, hard cases, uh, right? Because when he got, went after Lamb, Lamb was just about a perfect candidate for that district. Right. He was a Marine. I mean, that district, even though I voted for Trump, there are 20,000 more registered Democrats in that district than Republicans. So he was a Democrat. People still hadn't changed their registration. Yes. They voted for Trump, but he's here's... Pers- he's personally pro-life. Yeah, yeah. here's yeah. here's Lamb. He's... Right. He's pro-life. He's a Marine veteran. He's, he's just like a perfect candidate. Right. And so I think there's a certain that the presidents are picking. And then in Alabama, I mean, Moore was not exactly the stalwart candidate. So, so the bottom line is there are two things to it. One, they're picking when they're going after these people, they're going after people that are popular and mm-hmm. it's hard to uh, flip them out. Incumbency is a hard thing to get rid of. So you're probably self-selecting. So this raises two questions yeah. as far as the Republicans November, Dave. One is a stylistic question. How how and where do I deploy the President of the United States? I'm sorry, say that again? How and where do I deploy the President? He is too big to ignore. He just can't sit back <laughs> in the White House. He will not want to sit in the White House. He will want to go out and campaign because, frankly, he enjoys campaigning more than he enjoys governing, I think. So where do you send the president? So that's part of the question, Dave. But then the second part of this, this gets back to our conversation about women and yep. just the math of this. If Trump yep. is having a problem with women, if we think women are voted, motivated to vote in this election and to vote against Donald Trump, then you see an increased turnout among women, which means what for Republicans? They're going to need a turnout, increased turnout among men. Yep. So then the question for Republicans, Dave, is what buttons do you push to get men? And I think two of them you're seeing right now are guns yeah. and immigration. <clears throat> I think that's correct. The problem... So I, I, I agree, those are the two issues they'll push, but in those districts where those are crucial, right. I think they've already got them. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats, it's easy for a Democrat to run a candidate that says, yeah, I'm for guns. I, I mean, I, I go hunting all the time, you know, the right. pictures of John Kerry and Bill Clinton. I think Obama was the first Democratic presidential candidate in a long while. I didn't take pictures of himself out duck hunting or deer hunting or something. So the problem for the Republicans is, as they go into the primaries, as you know, they, mm-hmm. Republican candidates can't afford to alienate the base, Trump's base, which is still, you know, significant, 30, 30% or so of Republican, right. 30% of the country. And in Republican primaries, that's a big number. So they can't, they can't do it. So in the primaries, even in uh, Arizona, the leading woman, the senator, I forget her name, the Senate Republican candidate, McSally, I think. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, Martha McSally. Yeah, so she campaigned against Trump in 2016. She didn't like him, et cetera, but now she's talking about how friendly she is because right. she can't afford to alienate them. Now, once, the ele- once they get the nomination, Correct. then I think, say, McSally is not going to want to bring him out. That so is a fast- I don't think there's many, my view yeah. is there's not many places right. that he can go that are up for grabs, tilting, where he's going to be a help. That may be the most interesting Republican primary um, this year, Dave, the Arizona Senate primary, because you have three principles in it right now. One is Martha McSally, who mentioned was uh, not a Trump fan in 2016. That's because her congressional district was one of the most evenly split congressional districts in yep. America. It almost literally 50-50. So yep. you're looking for a bellwether, there, there it is. Yep. So she wet her finger, tested the win, and had to distance herself from Trump for survival. Yep. Uh, now she's running in a crowded primary. She's running against a woman named Kelly Ward, yep. uh, who is a very strong pro-Trumper, an ever-Trumper, if you will. Yep. She's always on Fox News, yep. uh, appealing to that segment. And then the third person is Sheriff Joe Arpaio, yep. <laughs> who's running as well. So yeah. this is an interesting study of where the Republican Party is in 2018. Yes. So uh, Trump could help in that primary. Yes. Once you win the primary... Mm-hmm. I just, I don't see how he helps. Uh, I don't either. And it's interesting because you also have the factory replacing Jeff Flake, who is, yeah. you know. Who's going to campaign. Who's going to, who's arguably the most outspoken Republican right. in the against Donald Trump. And then there's also John McCain somewhere out there. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's going to vary state by state. There are maybe, there are some places that he, right. he might make it. But it's going to be careful. And as you, think, as you recall, in 2010, there were a lot of Democrats mm-hmm that said, and same in 2014, there are a lot of Democrats who did not want President Obama in the district. Right. Uh, 
And so you'll see some of that because the 2018 election will be about, it'll be a referendum on Trump. Federal taxes are due uh, two weeks from yesterday, mm. Dave, and we haven't talked about the tax cut yet and where it is as an issue in this election. Well, I think the tax cut uh, was a help to the Republicans, uh, contrary to what Nancy Pelosi said about $1,000, blah, blah, cheap. Right. Uh, maybe to her, but to the average American, they're, they're happy to have it. So we saw poll numbers uh, on support for Trump go up. Uh, go up particularly on uh, how's the economy doing. Right. Uh, they've started to fall back down. Uh, so he got the biggest bump among independents who, who uh, they're starting to fall back uh, down. In the last couple of polls, he's sliding back down among independents. Uh, <clears throat> the de if the Democrats run on, well, who knows, the economy after, well, I don't know, the market's not particularly doing well today. So right. the trade thing is uh, is a bit of a problem. But if the economy is still strong, the Democrats uh, should not run on the issue of the tax cut. That's But that's another thing that the Sanders people want to run on, tax cuts for millionaires. I don't know about Tom Steyer. But it seems to me those are, those are losing issues for him. I would like you and Doug Rivers to pull on Amazon. Because I'm curious as to why the President of the United States wants to put Amazon in the crosshairs. Now, I understand Jeff Bezos is Jeff Bezos, and he owns the Washington Post, and that's a thorn in Donald Trump's size. But I'm very curious, Dave, as to what the, how the American public could come back on Amazon, because on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, companies like Amazon are slowly but surely, surely destroying mom-and-pop stores across America. Yeah, and, yeah. I can, and I can point you to a rather vacant mall about a mile away from the Apple headquarters in Cupertino. Yeah. Uh, so it's changing America's lifestyle. On the other hand, it's a very convenient company for millions yeah. upon millions of people who see it as having great selection and dependable service. So I'm not sure about the wisdom of Donald Trump going against a company which in this generation is the equivalent of what Sears was in the previous generation. Right. I, no, I agree. Uh, and the other thing I'd say, uh, the best example to me of that is Uber. Yeah. And there was that period where Kalanick was really in trouble and yelled at that person and and all of the media were focused on what a terrible company it was. Right. And then they revealed the next quarter and the number of people riding it was up. Mm -hmm. So I am not gonna, I frankly, when I'm in New York City and uh, I'm not gonna stand out on the corner for 40 minutes trying to get a cab right. when I can get an Uber so it's convenient. So I don't, the stock market price may drop some as it has a little bit, but I do not think users are going to stop using Amazon. No, it's not. It just raises the question, Dave, of presidents and picking the right fights. You know, no. Ronald, Ronald Reagan picks a fight or doesn't pick a fight, but he gets in a fight with air traffic controllers. Turns out to be a pretty good fight yes, to get involved with. Yeah. But I'm just not sure about the wisdom of going after Amazon. No, I would, it doesn't seem to me an issue that's going to win you very many voters. voters. I don't, they're not thinking about that. Okay, final question. I'll let you go, Dave. Um, Trump's popularity. Uh, I'm seeing polls. Rasmussen peaks it up at 50%. Um, the uh, Harvard poll I mentioned earlier had him up at 44. Other polls driving down toward 40. Uh, where is YouGov right now, and what's your sense to where Trump is, and really how relevant is uh, his personal number to that? He's at in the uh, low 40s. He's low down 40s. 12, 13 points on pr if people who approve of his job yeah. versus who don't. It's like 42, 54, mm -hmm. uh, something, something like that. He's down 12 points. Uh, which is amazingly high given the uh, state of the economy, <clears throat> and and uh, and the difference between Democrats and Republicans is immense. So, I think 10% of Democrats approve in any way of Trump, and 82% of Republicans approve of him. So again, that that divider rather than a unifier, he's in the 70s. Uh, uh, so given these polarized times among parties. We presidents are, it's very hard for presidents to be unifiers. Uh, and so they're dividers as the, well, Donald Trump is now making some headway because the 10 all time highest divisive. So you take the number of Democrats, if it's a, if it's a Democratic president, you say, how many Democrats say approve of his job? Then, right. you, then the number of Republicans is subtract one from the other. So if it's 90%, Versus 10%, he gets a score of 80. The 10 highest scores, since we've been running these since Eisenhower, right. the 10 highest scores are all Bush and Obama. And now uh, Trump uh, Trump is, uh, now Trump's in there. So now the among the 10 highest scores, there's Bush, Obama, and, uh, and Trump. So, Okay, which number is more important, Trump overall number or Trump number with Republicans? 
Trump number with the Republicans is the that's going to drive turnout in the fall, right? Yep. Well, yeah. Although we're start, we see at this point that there's still you know 16 percent of Republicans do not uh, don't approve of the job he's doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we ran our poll, uh, we, we had a, uh, I, I thought it would be a very clever question, do you want Donald Trump to run for president again? And on that question, we found that uh, of people who approved of Trump, only 49% wanted him to run again. And the people who don't want him to run again are overwhelmingly women. Right. So they may approve of his policies, but they don't like I don't know whether it's Stormy Daniels. There's a long, but at any rate, they they don't like various aspects of it. So even if they approve of his policy, they prefer he didn't run in 2020. That's interesting. I think one thing which you need to throw into the sampling is uh, the question of Trump and is Washington really changing under Trump? Because one thing which is a problem for Republicans is his signing the omnibus bill. Send me send me a wording on that, and I'll yeah, get it in. We'll do that, but it's just I think it's a question. Yeah. If you voted for yeah, Donald Trump one, and you're yeah. passionate about him, just what has he done differently? Yeah, yeah. you can point to Gorsuch, you can, you can vote to three things, but in terms of how Washington does his business, it looks yeah, very much the same. Yeah, good question. Okay. So send, me a cop, send, send me a version of it, I'll get we'll it in. So when are you going to be in a position to give us some crystal ball numbers? Uh, the, day, the day after the election? <laughs> no, yeah, the day after the election. We're, we're best, much better at post-diction than yes. pre-diction. Uh, I'm pretty sure Roosevelt won in 32. Uh, uh, so I think probably the more realistic stuff as the primaries start to come through, mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, Doug is going to have huge sample numbers, 80,000 or more for right. CBS. So uh, I would say as we come into June, uh, we'll, we'd begin June and July, we begin to have real, real numbers because then we'll have, know who the candidates are and so on and so forth. Interesting. But what does your gut tell you at this point, Dave? Is this a continuation of Brexit and Trump and just more more kind of upheaval at the polls? If or? I had a bet now, I would say uh, the odds of the Republicans taking the House are, uh, I mean, the Democrats taking the House are 60-40, positive. Mm -hmm. uh, the Senate uh, have to take, given the way the it's set up, I would say it would take real, uh, huge Democratic turnout to uh, take the Senate. It's possible, right? But uh, but unlikely at this point. So we appear to be setting ourselves up for more of the same of history, yes. where the president's going to come in flip with flop, Congress more flip -flop. and yep. is going to get part of it taken away, if not all, and yep. on we go. Yes, on we go. Okay, Dave Brady, enjoyed the conversation. Same here. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of David Brady and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I'm on Twitter. My, Hoover, my Twitter handle is at HooverWhalen. That's at Hoover, W-H-A-L-E-N. David Brady is not on Twitter. Too old. <laughs> Too old doesn't care. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.